This recording contains Blind Citizens News, Spring 2021. This podcast edition has been chapterized for your convenience. If you're listening on an app or device which supports podcast chapters, you may use the previous and next buttons to go between the different articles of Blind Citizens News. This edition of Blind Citizens News has been narrated by Glenn Morrow. Blind Citizens News, Spring 2021. Published by Blind Citizens Australia, ABN 90006985226. Blind Citizens Australia is the national representative organisation of people who are blind or vision impaired. Our mission is to inform, connect and empower Australians who are blind or vision impaired and the broader community. Copyright. Reproduction of articles appearing in Blind Citizens News is permitted, provided Blind Citizens News and the authors are acknowledged. Large print ISSN 1441449X. Braille ISSN 1441-5658. Blind Citizens Australia contact details. Ross House, Level 3, 247-251, Flinders Lane, Melbourne, Vic, 3000. Telephone 03 9654 1400. Toll free 1800 033 660. SMS 0438 446780. Email bca at bca.org.au. Blind Citizens News is distributed in large print, braille and audio. Electronic copies in text format are available from our website, on CD or by email. The audio edition is available as a podcast by searching for Blind Citizens Australia in your favourite podcast app or can be accessed via the Vision Australia library service. Other publications, New Horizons Radio Program and Podcast, Blind Citizens Annual Report, Blind Citizens Australia Staff, Chief Executive Officer Emma Benison, General Manager Operations Angela Jeske, General Manager Projects and Engagement Sally Orish, Policy and Advocacy Team Leader Jane Britt, National Advocacy Officer Martin Stewart. National Advocacy Projects Officer, Jackie Armstrong. Manager, Finance and Administration, Tony Grant. Information and Administration Officer, Samantha Marsh. Communications Assistant, Anna Briggs. Communications Coordinator, Jill McKee. Executive Assistant, Naomi Barber. New South Wales slash ACT Program Officer, Jennifer Parry. Project Officer, Peer Support, Connor Smith. Policy Officer, Jackson Reynolds-Ryan. Project Assistant, Jolene Scott. Membership Engagement Officer, Tim Haggis. Finance Officer, Sue Cutler. Editorial by Jonathan Craig. In most ways, today has been like any other workday, but the familiarity of my job has been charged with novelty. This is only the third day I've spent in the office with colleagues I've known for a year, but only briefly met in person. Most of our small team still work from home, and in fact, our whole office building still seems mostly empty. For me, this has been an opportunity to explore without the sense of curious eyes on me. 
In my O&M session earlier, I felt blissfully unobserved as my instructor found increasingly challenging places where taxi drivers could incorrectly drop me off outside the building. The routine of packing up and riding the lift feels at once mundane and momentous. By the time the building is fully populated again, I believe my navigation will appear confident and effortless. But in the lobby, there's a catch. At first, I think the door isn't opening automatically because of my height. The sensors aren't designed to detect people in wheelchairs, so I give it a casual wave. An easy hack that usually works. This time, it doesn't. I realise it's just past 5pm, and the door will only open with the press of a button on the wall beside it. Distracted by the misstep in my dance, I forget which side of the door the button is on. But there's an easy way to recover the memory. When I was shown the button last, I was entering the building, not exiting. So I turn around so the door is behind me, and sure enough, the information clicks into place. Hi, are you looking for the front door? From her concerned tone, I can tell she has been watching me from behind the glass in an office I naively assumed was still unoccupied. I replied that I'm just looking for the door button. Sorry, says the other woman who'd appeared beside her. It's just here. I leave the building. They don't follow me. Which means they hadn't emerged to head home. This was a rescue mission. Those of you who know this is my last editorial in this role might think this is a strange way to start. Here's a chance to reflect on your achievements, you say. Why tell us about a momentary indignity instead of enjoying your victory lap? I've chosen to avoid the usual gestures, partly because I feel they're self-indulgent and partly because there's something big I want to tackle and my grand finale is as good a place as any. I've always described us as a community in conversation, and at the moment, some of us are talking about blind culture. Jonathan Mosin's piece, Why I Am Proud to be Blind, and Leona Godin's book, Their Plant Eyes, as well as their conversation on episode 142 of Mosin's podcast, are good places to catch up. Like my fellow Jonathan, I am proud to be blind in some ways. For example, I've always felt very glad to be part of this community, surrounded by innovators and educators who have made huge headway in the ongoing quest for inclusion. But in the taxi on my way home, I didn't feel proud. I thought of all those people and was certain I'd let the side down. Those women who shared a building with me but otherwise might have no knowledge of people who are blind or vision impaired came to help, wrongly assuming I was lost and confused. This may have had a strong impression on them. The next time they met one of us might be in a job interview. It can be hard to understand how people who can't open a door could also be reliable employees. Remembering my perceived struggle, without knowledge of our real capacities, would she choose to hire that applicant over another candidate? In the moment I was flustered, not by the missing button, but by the realisation that I was being watched, and that my actions, waving my hand in the air, turning to face away from the door, probably didn't make sense to my observers. 
I felt I should have stopped to explain, but I didn't know where to begin or what I had unintentionally interrupted. So I thanked my supposed saviours and swiftly departed. Many of us feel a constant pressure to be good ambassadors for our people and our cause. If we're to overcome the attitude problem, which is keeping too many of us from work, we must be super competent, immaculately dressed, graceful, polite, inconspicuous and self-assured. Mistakes will be received with compassion or pity, but they will confirm people's low expectations of us. Therefore, there must be no mistakes, ever. I'm not the person to speak for this, but for women, I'm sure there are many more criteria to meet. Many get far closer than I do, but I would argue there isn't a single one of us who could consistently live up to the standards we apply to ourselves. But by God do we try, and God does it make us miserable. This is why some of us are mercilessly critical of one another when we appear not to be trying hard enough. Knowing how hard you work to keep up the act, it's easy to resent others' failures. Some of you will resent my ineptitude in allowing myself to look lost. Others will believe my sense of obligation is misplaced, that I shouldn't have to teach, that people with sight should know better. Some of you will even suggest that rather than educating them, I should have chastised those women for patronising me. It's a question we're always grappling with. What are our obligations to people who don't understand us and one another if we're seeking a more inclusive world? If you are expecting answers, I'm sorry to disappoint you, I'm not willing to offer instructions or solutions, as if I know better than anyone, as if there were only one right way. I'm here to articulate the questions I believe we're all grappling with. Coming to conclusions, if there are any to be reached, is your job. But I will say that while there are some people who are proud to be blind or vision impaired, there are some people who are anything but. Some people avoid the blind culture Leona Godin describes at all costs, claiming it's genuinely bad for their mental health. That's a perfectly valid way to live also. But I wonder if those people have to work extra hard without the benefit of peers to learn from. Certainly, we miss out on their company and expertise. A lot of the judgement I'm describing is internal, but not all of it. Our community is one of the more cohesive I've seen. But wouldn't it be great if we could collectively think about the attitude problem in a different way? If people who are blind or vision impaired, but not superhuman, have to hold a dog cane or magnifier in one hand and a constant sense of failure in the other, is that a help or a hindrance? This is why I've constantly encouraged you to tell your stories, to talk about the difficulties you've experienced, so that other people know they aren't alone. It's very important to celebrate our victories, large and small, but many of us avoid talking about moments like these for fear of judgment. And there would be judgment from some, but from most, I hope, 
there would be understanding. Next time someone thinks I'm lost, I'll be ready to explain how orientation and mobility works. I think they'll find it very interesting. Some people will find that approach is overly generous, but it's a commitment I'm happy with. I also forgive myself for freezing in that moment. And if, as you're reading this, you're musing about some way in which you feel you dropped the ball, please try to forgive yourself too. This is my last challenge to you. I would love to see us talk more about the moments where we have been only human, how we coped, what we learned. I think adding this to the conversation might help to make our community feel healthier, safer, more supportive, and remind us that minor errors won't condemn us all to the workshops again. We've come too far for that. And while we're led by individuals, we have travelled that distance together. So let's aim to approach every situation that way. Truthfully, I would love to have continued in this role for much longer. As you can see, I'm intent as ever on identifying our community's weaknesses and, more importantly, strengths. You'll still hear from me in these pages, but rather than a moderator and facilitator, I'll be a participant in the conversation. I'm very much looking forward to seeing our new editor take us forward, and I hope to offer them all the help I can. In this issue. As always, this issue of BC News features articles on the challenges of life and the triumph of the human spirit, this time through the arts. Emboldened by the Me Too era, Ria Andriani extends the editorial theme of unsolicited help in a moving account of the trauma that she has experienced, the critical importance of consent, and of her newfound confidence in being assertive. Helen Ferreris opens a conversation about the additional costs such as accommodation, services and software associated with blindness and vision impairment. High school student Amanda Padelka shares her love and enthusiasm for music and singing in the shower, nurtured by Braille Music Camp. While audio description may yet have only a precarious footing in television, Lynn Davis dares to dream about a future full of possibility. Gathering the fruits of a recent happy hour, Fiona Woods arms us with a handy resource of book titles by blind and vision impaired authors. To round out, Sally Orish tells us what's on at BCA, and Janine Sadu presents an update on the National Women's Branch, beginning with a tribute to longtime BCA member Lisa Hayes, who sadly passed away in April. Thanks to all our contributing authors. Open letter from BCA leaders John Simpson, President, and Emma Benison, CEO. Dear members, colleagues, and friends, Firstly, a content warning that this letter contains discussions of sexual misconduct, bullying and abuse. If you find this subject matter distressing and wish to speak to someone about it, we encourage you to contact Lifeline on 13114, 1800RESPECT on 1800-737-732 or Men's Line on 1300-789978. Each of these services can provide you with confidential counselling, support, information and referral.
In recent years, we have strengthened our approach to providing a safe and respectful environment for anyone involved with BCA that is free from violence, abuse, bullying and harassment. Specifically, we have convened conversations about boundaries and consent for our organisation's leaders and at our national and state conventions. Our board and staff have also undergone training in relation to sexual harassment and bullying and on dealing with the impacts of trauma. In addition, we have actively advocated for a disability royal commission that is trauma-informed and accessible and have assisted people who are blind or vision impaired to make submissions. A trauma-informed approach recognises the need to create a safe and trusting environment because a significant number of people have experienced trauma in their lives, which may have a long-term impact on their relationships, emotions and behaviour. Now, we believe we need to do more. In part, this is because of recent happenings within the National Federation of the Blind in the USA. As some of you may be aware, late last year, numerous people who are blind or vision impaired came forward with allegations of sexual misconduct, bullying and physical and emotional abuse against leaders, staff and members at all levels of the NFB and its affiliated training centres. While BCA is not aware of any current allegations of this nature within our own organisation, our leaders have been closely following the NFB situation. This is because both organisations undertake similar activities and have similar missions and membership profiles. We also recognise that NFB leaders visit Australia from time to time, sometimes at our invitation to contribute to BCA events such as conventions. There is no doubt that the NFB experience reflects on increased awareness both here in Australia and elsewhere of the impact of violence and abuse on survivors. We also know that people with disability are at higher risk of violence and abuse than the general population, and our organisation has adopted a zero-tolerance policy in relation to this behaviour, whether at a branch meeting, a national convention, or in the context of any other BCA event, whether online or face-to-face. That said, we appreciate that it takes enormous courage to come forward to report this kind of behaviour. And we are aware that, over time, expectations about what behaviours are considered inappropriate have changed. So we want to ensure that if you have experienced or witnessed sexual misconduct, bullying or abuse of any kind during your involvement with BCA, you can report it safely and confidentially if you choose to do so and have the confidence it will be fully investigated by professionals who are independent of our organisation. On that basis, we are currently working to establish an independent complaints and investigations hotline. We will provide details regarding how you can make a complaint and about the investigation process as soon as possible through all our regular communications channels.
We are also keen to continue our work to arm our whole community with a shared understanding of our expectations in terms of acceptable behaviour, consent and boundary setting to ensure a safe and respectful environment for all. Over the coming months, we will be updating relevant internal policies and procedures to ensure they reflect our expectations. During this time, mandatory training will be rolled out for leaders at all levels of our organisation on sexual misconduct, bullying and harassment, which will also cover boundary setting and consent. This training will also be provided to members regularly as part of BCA's face-to-face and online events. We will keep you updated on our progress and welcome your feedback on any additional activities you think we could take to ensure our organisation is safe and welcoming to all. When Help Hurts by Ria Andriani This is a story by Unbiased the News, an all-women cross-border newsroom by Hostwriter. This article discusses aspects of violence. If this causes any distress, you can call 1-800-RESPECT for support. You stand on the platform to catch the train in the morning. It arrives, you prepare to board. Suddenly, someone grabs you to help you step over the gap. There's no instructional video on how to help a disabled person get on a train. So they pull, push, lift or twist you. It's supposed to be a mark of decency. Proof that you live in a caring society. Except throughout the whole exchange, you didn't ask for help. And you certainly did not give your consent. You swallow the annoyance clogging your throat. Did I just let someone grab me? But it has already happened. The person is lost in the crowd. And in any case, no harm was done. You might not have agreed to be helped. But surely the least you can do is say thank you to the stranger, right? For those with visual disabilities, such as people who are blind or use a wheelchair, catching a train is a public affair, involving verbal and physical contacts. The assumption is, of course, you want help. An assumption which cuts across countries and cultures. As a blind person who grew up in Indonesia and now lives in Australia, I find it hard to articulate why unsolicited help is a serious issue. The problem, however, is real, pervasive and can cause serious harm. After the Me Too era, I began to have words to describe what is wrong. Words such as unsolicited and consent. In recent years, we have further tried to explain sexual consent with a cup of tea. Words such as enthusiastic consent have entered our everyday language. Yet these words do not describe mundane interactions when travelling by public transport. If you're by yourself, does somebody take your arm to help you get on the train? My Indonesian stepmother asked me. Yes, but most often I refuse, especially if they just grab me. But that's rude, she pointed out. Rudeness from a woman isn't acceptable. When coming from a woman with disability, it is doubly unacceptable. Getting help was considered part of my entitlement as a disabled person in Indonesia. But if I was harmed when getting help, it was supposed to be my fault. To begin with, a better person would have been more careful. 
They would have worn non-revealing clothes as well. Moreover, they would have had the skills to travel independently. In all this, whether my consent was sought or not becomes inconsequential. The same scenario persists in Australia, though here, at least, I am able to hold some ground, because when I come here, I was no longer a minor. I was living and moving around independently. Living in Australia, taking public transport is how I access most places. Most journeys involve fending off unwanted help. People take my arm, my shoulder, my waist, my white cane, and occasionally my dog guide leash. More often than not, they are an expression of kindness, other times of chivalry. So when I twist, turn, yell, or refuse, it provokes confusion and anger in them. After all, I am expected to be grateful. My reasons for saying no should be private and irrelevant. Besides, there is no time for long explanations in the brief span between the opening and closing of the train door, yet I take on the burden of justifying my refusals and assuaging bruised egos. This unasked-for help has an even murkier side at times. I experienced it one afternoon around the corner from my home. A man introduced himself as Matthew and asked for directions to the train station, which I gave. He praised me for my independence, a blind person out by herself, and so confident. Then he asked me how old I was and where I lived. Obviously, I was getting uncomfortable. I lied through my teeth and walked away. That was when he ran and grabbed me from behind. I screamed for help and kept running. That was all. Except it wasn't. In the following days, I thought a lot about what had happened. Was it just bad luck? Or was it something I wore? Did I exude such tempting vulnerability that he had to take advantage? Was my escape due to luck or something I did? What was chilling was that when the police asked, during my statement, will you be able to identify this man? Over the next few months, I began to change. Those physical contacts imposed on me were no longer just well-intentioned irritants. In addition, I knew the statistic. Women with disability are twice as likely to experience violence. But cases like mine, a random act perpetrated by a stranger, are relatively rare, or perhaps its gravity is less recognisable. After that, upon being touched by strangers, I would relive the moment and end up running or yelling. This uncalled-for touch was more common when I used a white cane as my mobility aid compared to when I was with my dog guide. Maybe people thought if I could take care of a dog, I had the potential to look after myself too. In subsequent years, my reaction to unsolicited help formed the crux of my dilemma. I felt torn between the need to keep myself safe and the pressure to meet society's expectations that I would welcome help. Often I perform the unpleasant spectacle of a disabled woman refusing help, playing over and over in full view of the public. I don't like the person I have become when I do this, but there is a question I can never stop asking. What if I am attacked and I am not quick enough to escape? 
To accept help, I have to accept my vulnerability. I have to trust the other person to do the right thing. After the incident of the assault, I don't want to risk it until I really need aid. With unsolicited help, there is no conversation about one person's intention or the other person's need. There is just instinct. There's to help by physical contact, mine to be safe. In the words of Uma, a young woman I met at a train station, when you take control of her body, you take away her agency. There are also many whose help is genuinely welcomed. It is not their background, but their attitude that matters. They do not offer help until asked, and respond warmly when I do. Before touching me, they ask for my consent. If they offer assistance and I refuse, they don't insist on it. They do not make assumptions about my disability. Also, they trust my capabilities. These interactions are enabling and can lead to genuine, even pleasant, connections during the routine of commuting. My mind and body have not forgot the trauma-inducing aspect of helpfulness, though nowadays my response is far less extreme. Can I kiss you? asked a helpful stranger after I accepted his offer to find the turnstile at a less familiar station. Knowing the barrier was closed, I refused. As I did so, something screamed inside my head. He helped you. Can't you even be nice to him? I hadn't even known him for five minutes. Comment from the editor. When I wrote the piece, When Help Hurts, I thought I was alone. The disability community is well versed in the unwelcome effect of unsolicited help. We've spoken about how it diminishes our agency, annoyed the hell out of us, and caused some amusement on both sides when we can turn the situation around. What is harder to articulate is how unsolicited help can do harm. The consequences seem insignificant. A limb grab, a destination scrambled, an unpleasant exchange of words. It's hard and harder for women with disability to say that our person is off limits. When we do accept help, it can turn into a breach of our safety. Since the article went live, I've received comments from women with disability who share my concerns. Their stories range from articulating the internal pressure of being nice and just accepting help to frightening encounters whilst receiving help. What's clear to me is that at some point we all have grappled with the issue of interacting with unsolicited help and keeping ourselves safe. I hope this piece can generate some productive conversation about boundaries and, most of all, about consent. Just like the tea metaphor, when help is given with consent, it's a wonderful thing we can all do for one another. But when the act of helping is abused, it causes harm. The Cost of Blindness by Helen Ferreris Have you ever thought about the additional expenses associated with life as a person who is blind? This issue periodically arises in discussions among us about the costs of assistive technology, taxi travel, the coverage and our eligibility for support packages, whether they be with the NDIS or My Aged Care. 
BCA researched this issue some years ago. The study, entitled The Non-Optional Costs of Blindness, revealed that participants were incurring costs in areas specifically related to maintaining independence and participating in family and community life. Apart from assistive technology and taxi fares, costs included higher accommodation costs due to living close to public transport or essential services, as well as gifts for family and friends who provided support with tasks such as home maintenance or community participation. The funding landscape has changed quite a bit since this study was conducted in 2002. NDIS participants are now able to claim for some blindness-related costs, such as payment of support workers and purchase of assistive devices and technology. But not everyone is eligible for NDIS, nor is financial support for these items by NDIS guaranteed or consistent. Participants in My Aged Care are required to make co-payments for any services or items this scheme funds, and again, support is inconsistent. Of course, we have access to the Disability Support Pension Blind, whose purpose is to supplement blindness-related expenses. For many of us, this pension is additionally our main source of income due to the high unemployment rate of people with vision impairment in Australia a cost in itself. Any indication of government-instigated changes to the DSP blind or to staple supports such as multi-purpose taxi schemes are justifiably met by us with trepidation. But what exactly contributes to the costs of blindness? And do these relate to possible policy and advocacy initiatives by BCA? A few examples might start the conversation. Let's take accommodation. Many of us may wish to live in areas well serviced by transport and amenities. Doing so exposes us to higher rental or mortgage costs, as centrally located accommodation is usually more costly than housing located further from essential services. Alternatively, we may have an affinity with a regional area or enjoy living close to communities of family or friends. Doing so might incur particular costs of transport or other services needed to participate fully in the life of the community. What about the services we might pay for due to needing assistance to complete tasks which most sighted people can undertake themselves? You might have been charged by a telecommunications company to install a modem because the installation software isn't accessible, or you are unable to see modem lights or prompts. You might pay someone to assemble flat pack furniture because the instructions, even when scanned, are too visual to read. How many of us are using outdated screen reading or magnification software because we are ineligible for schemes to finance updates? This risks leaving us behind as the digital environment is designed for the latest assistive software. Perhaps you can think of other costs associated with blindness. Most of these costs result from inaccessible services or infrastructure, and BCA members and staff constantly advocate for the removal of accessibility barriers, limiting our choices and costing us financially. What do you think about additional costs of blindness? Are they unavoidable? Are there additional costs besides the ones mentioned here?
How adequately do current funding provisions such as the DSP Blind and NDIS cover these costs? What gaps do these costs highlight in accessibility for us? Are there specific areas of policy BCA could engage in so that costs are mitigated? I pose the above questions to start a conversation on this subject and to generate ideas for BCA's ongoing policy and advocacy. Please reach out with your thoughts by contacting BCA by phone or email and let's see where the conversation takes us. The Magic of Music and What It Means to Me by Amanda Bedelka. Editor's Note. Amanda won one of seven appreciation prizes in the youth age group of last year's Onkyo Braille competition. In her essay, she mentions National Braille Music Camp, which seems as valuable to her as it has been to me and many others. Not just for the music, but for the chance to be together with so many peers. Thanks to the pandemic, Braille Music Camp has been cancelled the last two years in a row. Hang in there, Amanda. I am 15 years old and I am in Year 9 at Footscray High School in Melbourne, Australia. At age 3, I developed juvenile arthritis which attacked my eyes, rendering me legally blind by the age of 8. While I use Braille for school and leisure activities, my next goal in Braille is to learn the Braille music code. I have chosen this topic because I love music and I hope to pursue a career in music and performance after I finish my studies. Music is everywhere around us. It is a big part of the world that we live in and a big part of my life. Some of my first memories of music was when I started dancing. When I was five years old, I asked my mum if I could participate in dance lessons, so she enrolled me in a nearby dance studio. I learned many different dancing styles like ballet, jazz, tap dancing and glee classes. I loved moving to the music, getting to dress up in sparky outfits and performing at dance concerts. Because I learned many different styles of dances, I was introduced to many different styles of music. And this is where my love for music started. Looking back on it, I cannot imagine my childhood without dance and still thank my mum for enrolling me when I asked. My next wish is to start singing lessons. I started singing in the shower, which, by the way, has excellent acoustics. I love singing because it is a way of expressing my thoughts and emotions without having to speak the words. Singing for me is an outlet. If I have a rough day, I always feel better after singing my heart out. It's also why my showers are very long. Currently, I attend Green Tree drama classes every Saturday, and it's the highlight of my week. Being in a theatre environment and surrounded by people who feel the same way about performance as I do just gives me a real sense of belonging. This year, my school is doing the Mary Poppins musical production. I was very excited to be chosen for a part in the ensemble as well as a speaking role. I feel being in a musical is a truly special experience because the audience is able to see a story being told through singing, dance, music and acting. Performing on stage transports me away from the real world, which can be really hard sometimes. 
Being vision impaired, I cannot see expressions on other people's faces or body language. Through music and singing, I can understand people's emotions without needing to see them. One day, I hope to go to Broadway in New York to see both The Lightning Thief and Hamilton musicals. I know being able to see these musicals live in the iconic Broadway theatre will have a special meaning for me. In the past three years, I have attended National Braille Music Camp in Mittagong, Australia. Braille Music Camp is a music camp for students who are blind or low vision Braille users who come together from all around Australia, New Zealand, the Pacific Islands and Thailand. We spend one fun week together learning, playing and performing music. During the week, part of our time is spent learning Braille music and the rest is dedicated to rehearsing in choir as well as in bands, orchestra and solo artists. On the final night of camp, we put on a concert for our families and the community. This camp allows me to meet others who have the same love for music that I have. I have made great friends at music camp and look forward to seeing them again every year and performing with them. Another big part of music for me is playing the piano and the guitar. I am hoping to start instrumental music lessons to improve my skill as I am currently self-taught and still have much to learn about playing instruments. I want to learn how to play these instruments because I want to be able to both play and sing my favourite songs by myself and would love to write some of my own songs one day. I have been learning how to use the Braille Music Editor software at my Support Skills program. This helps me to learn how to compose music for my music classes in school. I have chosen music every year as an elective and will continue to do so in the future. Music lifts me up and gives me energy to do my best. It doesn't matter what I decide to do in the future, but music is always going to be a part of my life. If nothing else, I'll always have my long showers. Some blue sky thinking about the potential of audio description by Lynn Davis. I first heard about audio description in the 1990s in Victoria, where live audio description of theatre was already well known among vision-impaired people thanks to the pioneering work of Marjorie West and her volunteer describers. I found the idea interesting, but at the time I had good central vision, could see both stage and screen, and was not fully appreciative of the value of audio description. Fast forward some years and with no sight remaining, I rapidly became a huge fan. In the beginning, my experience was limited to audio-described DVDs, occasional film screenings and then live theatre performances. Finally, in 2020, after years of campaigning and a couple of false starts, at last it was possible to watch some television this way. Jonathan Craig has written a well-researched and interesting article on the history of the campaign for audio-described television in Australia, which was published in the July 2020 issue of this newsletter. And I don't intend to revisit that history here. 
Instead, what I'd like to do is indulge in a bit of blue sky thinking about the enormous potential of audio description for enhancing the experiences of blind and vision impaired people in Australia. My feeling is that there has been limited innovation and development in the area recently. BCA in particular has mounted active campaigns for audio description in cinemas and on television. And to some extent, these have been successful. But as we have discovered in so many areas and on so many occasions, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. I am not sure how embedded audio description is in cinemas around Australia. I do know that my local independent cinema purchased the necessary equipment several years ago, but never advertised this fact. And on inquiring, I was told that it wasn't ready yet. End of story. And recently, on venturing back to the movies, after a COVID-induced hiatus, I asked at my other local, and was told, somewhat proudly it seemed, oh no, we don't have that here. I've also tried talking with the Sydney Film Festival about the need for audio description of the mainstream featured films, not just a few films in a special section of films featuring disabled actors, directors and subjects. I think the Melbourne International Film Festival has included a small number of audio-described films among its mainstream offerings, but so far there has not been any movement in that direction in Sydney. So although our campaign was good, long and persistent, I'm not so sure that we achieved many lasting gains in the cinemas. It's probably too early to judge the success of audio-described television in Australia right now. At present, it is limited to a prescribed number of hours, 14 per week on ABC and SBS. Nothing is mandated or offered on the commercial free-to-air channels, and there is a limited offering on the streaming services. And at present, if you miss an audio-described program on ABC and SBS and want to watch it on the catch-up service, you will not be able to watch it with audio description. There is still a lot of room for improvement in the area of television, and this campaign still has a long way to run. The publicly funded channels invite feedback on the service via their dedicated communications channels, but my experience of these has been that they are very sluggish in responding. And we need to keep firmly in mind that this public funding is not yet guaranteed. It is much less embedded than captioning is for people who have hearing impairments. At least in Sydney, the city where I live, the other form of audio description available on a regular basis is live description in the theatre and opera. However, these are often in a limited number of venues and for a limited range of performances. If you need audio description, you most definitely do not have access to the full range of performances and it is rarely available in smaller, less mainstream or established companies. In the mainstream companies, the live service is provided by volunteers, not paid professional describers. There are not many blindness services currently based on this model of provision, and I think we should be examining the implications of its continued existence. 
especially whether it limits the potential for development and expansion of the service. I would certainly like to see live audio description expanded to include concerts and other musical events. Usually when I say this, the response is, but you listen to music, you don't look at it. In fact, there's a great deal of visual information involved in most musical events. For a long time, I've been a subscriber to symphony concerts, and in the beginning, being sighted, I assumed that my experience was similar to that of most other members of the audience. Since I've been blind, I know that it is not. These are some of the things I'd like to know about the concerts I go to. Is the full orchestra on stage or only a part of it? How are the members of the orchestra, the conductor and any soloists dressed? Is there a choir and if so, how large is it? Is it made up of men, women, adults, children? How are they dressed? Are there any unusual features of the way the stage is laid out? The orchestra is arranged, props or scenery are used. Is there any text visible? Is there any screen onto which images or information is or will be projected? What is happening when there is a wave of applause? At the beginning of the concert, is this because someone is coming out on stage? At the end, who is being applauded? What is the layout of the concert hall? And where am I sitting in relation to the exits? Lastly, I'd like to know something about the audience. How are people dressed? Is there anything to note about the demographics? I realise that this list is a bit idiosyncratic, but these are the things I always used to look at. And in their absence, my experience is diminished. I'm certainly not asking that the describers talk over the music which I came to listen to, but that's a cardinal rule of audio description for any kind of performance or situation, isn't it? The final bit of blue sky I'd like to discuss in this ramble through the byways of audio description, and I think the most innovative in terms of what's currently on offer, is individualised description. I started to think about this a few years ago at my daughter's wedding. She chose the full bells and whistles variety. And at the beginning of the day, I found myself sitting at the front of an unfamiliar church as an organ burst into music. The other members of the congregation emitted various sounds, admiration, nostalgia, surprise, who knew? And my invisible daughter and husband proceeded up the aisle. It would have made such a difference to me if I could have had the company of an experienced describer, someone who was doing their job rather than being asked for favours. Since that time, I have had many occasions on which I've reflected on this topic and discussed it with others. I even read an article some years ago, I think from Canada, about audio description being arranged for a wedding attended by a number of blind people. Not exactly individualised description, but a recognition of the same fundamental need to be a full participant rather than a bystander or observer at life's significant moments.
I realise that the kind of innovation I am floating will require not only campaigning, but policy shifts of various kinds, funding, cost recovery and training and certification to mention a few. But if we don't envisage what the world could be like, it is unlikely to change. And BCA has always been wedded to the idea of changing what it means to be blind. Our deaf peers have accomplished much in this space and may offer us something of a roadmap, or at least a few stakes in the ground, which might help us on our way. Books about blind people by blind people by Fiona Woods. BCA recently held a happy hour to talk about books written by authors who are blind or vision impaired. There is often a tension between the author over-explaining for their sighted readers and the pleasure of having the world described in ways that are familiar to us. Books about blind people or blind characters can be as diverse as the people and experiences of the people writing them. The following books were mentioned and can be a useful source of information, education and entertainment. The list is not exhaustive. As with all literature, books reflect the era in which they were written. Attitudes and experiences may have changed, but these authors remain in our minds as having something meaningful to say about life for a person who is blind or vision impaired. The good news is that most of these titles are available as Human Voice Daisy Audio in the Vision Australia Library. You could contact the library directly to check the availability of a Braille copy. Matilda Ann Aston, Memoirs of Tilly Aston. David Blunkett, The Blunkett Tapes, My Life in the Bear Pit. Ken Brandt, Positive Vision, Enjoying the Adventures and Advantages of Poor Eyesight. Lucy Ching, One of the Lucky Ones. Harold Dickinson, Over the Next Hill. Nick Gleeson and Peter Bishop, The Many Ways of Seeing a True Story of Blindness, Friendship and Adventure. Hoban Germer, Hoban. Mike Hingston, Thunderdog, The True Story of a Blind Man, His Guide Dog and The Triumph of Trust at Ground Zero. James Holman, A Voyage Around the World. John Hull, Touching the Rock. Graham Innes, Finding a Way. Helen Keller, the story of my life and many other writings. Ryan Knighton, Cockeyed, a memoir. Robert Curson, Crashing Through, a true story of risk, adventure and a man who dared to see. Ron McCallum, Born at the Right Time. Eric Weinmayer, Touching the Top of the World, a blind man's journey to climb further than the eye can see. Marie Yonan, A Different Kind of Seeing, My Journey. Although there are many novels with blind characters, we were not able to find many authors who describe themselves as blind or vision impaired when writing fiction. One exception is Red Zell, who has written Blind Trust. John Milton, Sue Townsend and Colleen McCulloch are all authors who continue to write whilst losing their sight. All of us at the happy hour were curious about other people who have written books on other topics but who happen to be blind or vision impaired. Perhaps it is something like being female in an earlier age, when it was thought wiser not to disclose. 
the blindness community is far more diverse than what is reflected by the above list. I look forward to exploring the minds and lives of many other writers who are blind or vision impaired in the future. What's On at BCA by Sally Orish. Life at BCA is busier than ever, and there are plenty of ways you can join in. Here are just a few. BCA Inform. On the first Tuesday of every month, we hold BCA Inform. This is a chance to get together and talk more in depth about a particular topic. So far, we've covered taxi and ride shares, orientation and mobility, BCA's service charter, and so much more. If you'd like to find out the topic for the next BCA Inform, you can visit BCA's website or give us a call on 1800 033 Happy hours and trivia. Every Thursday evening at 7.30pm, BCA hosts a regular happy hour. These are a great opportunity to come along and discuss a different topic each week. We also hold trivia every Saturday night from 8pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. Come along and play for bragging rights. Everyone is always welcome. You can join a happy hour or trivia by using the Zoom link, which you can get by calling the BCA National Office on 1800 033 or emailing bca at bca.org.au. The Zoom meeting ID is 889-3721-0004. The meeting password is 698021. BCA Hugh Jeffries Scholarships. BCA will be opening another round of scholarships for new and continuing tertiary students on Monday the 17th of January 2022. If you are studying a recognised qualification and would like to receive up to $5,000 towards the cost of your course, materials or assistive technology, we encourage you to apply. There will be an online application process with all details available on the BCA website. BCA Annual General Meeting The time is drawing near again for the BCA AGM. A formal notice will be sent to you in your preferred format in early October. But in the meantime, please save the date in your calendar so you can be sure to join us on Saturday the 4th of December. From the National Women's Branch by Janine Sadu. In April this year, the National Women's Branch, NWB, were saddened to hear of the death of Lisa Hayes. Lisa was on our NWB committee and will be greatly missed. One of our branch members, Nicola Stowe, hosted an event via phone to celebrate Lisa's life on the evening of her funeral service. This was a fitting way for women who knew Lisa to join together to remember her and to celebrate her life. We were fortunate to have Lisa's close friend and wonderful support person, Lisa Marie, join us, which was very much appreciated. May Lisa rest in peace. During our lockdown, the branch is continuing to run phone chats each day at 3pm Australian Eastern Standard Time to keep those who wish to be involved connected with each other. Anne hosts her popular gardening chat on the first Monday of the month and Word Wednesday, a fun word-based session incorporating games such as trivia, quizzes, celebrity heads, things we learnt from our parents and more, is on every Wednesday. 
All are welcome. You don't have to be a Women's Branch member or female to join in these activities. Our NWB Book Club continues to meet on the last Wednesday of each month at 7.30pm Australian Eastern Standard Time and new members are always welcomed. The NWB AGM will be taking place via teleconference on Saturday the 20th of November commencing at 1pm Australian Eastern Daylight Time. This will include elections of a new president and committee. All female members of our branch are eligible to stand for these positions. If anyone would be interested in sitting in on our October committee meetings to see how they operate, please get in contact with Janine via email at nwb at bca.org.au or contact the BCA office to request a callback about this, any of our NWB activities or simply a chat about our women's branch. Your feedback is always very welcome. Feedback for BCA. Do you have any compliments, suggestions or concerns you would like to let BCA know about? You can do this anonymously by going to our website bca.org.au forward slash feedback and completing a feedback form or you can call the BCA office toll free on 1800 033 660. Your feedback will be used to improve our services to better meet the needs of our membership. How to make a complaint about BCA. Any member, client, volunteer or their advocate can lodge a complaint about the services provided by BCA. Complaints can be made in the following ways. Phone 1800 033 email bca at bca.org.au, website bca.org.au forward slash feedback. Post Blind Citizens Australia Level 3, Ross House 247 to 251, Flinders Lane, Melbourne, Vic 3000. If there are complaints of a serious nature, the Chief Executive Officer will ask that the complaint be put in writing. Complaints will be recorded in accordance with the requirements for complaints management outlined by the Office of Disability Services Commissioner. Member and client privacy will be respected and protected in relation to the recording, management and resolution of the complaint. For a full copy of BCA's complaints policy, please go to our website bca.org.au forward slash feedback or call the office. Funding and donations for BCA. BCA would like to acknowledge the generous work of the Jeffrey Blythe Foundation. The foundation was founded in 1995 with BCA being the primary beneficiary. We would also like to acknowledge our funding partners, the Department of Communities and Justice New South Wales, the Department of Health and Human Services DHHS Victoria, the Department of Social Services Vision Australia, the Australian Federation of Disability Organisations, Guide Dogs Victoria, Guide Dogs Queensland, Guide Dogs New South Wales, Visibility Inc and our generous members. If you would like to make a donation to Blind Citizens Australia, you can call 1800 033 and use your credit card. You can also donate online using the Donate tab on the BCA website. All donations over $2 are tax deductible. Submit your writing to Blind Citizens News. 
The editor welcomes your submissions for Blind Citizens News. Submissions for the next edition close on Friday the 14th of January 2022. Contributions can be submitted in Braille, print, audio CD or electronic format in Word in Arial 16-point font. Send emails to bca at bca.org.au and write Blind Citizens News submission in the subject line. For all other format contributions, please send the document to the BCA office. Submissions should be between 500 and 1,200 words in length. Submissions cannot be made anonymously and the editor must be made aware of any conflict of interest which may be relevant to the author's work. Directory of Contact Details. Further information on the Eye to the Future of Employment project, contact Naomi Barber. Naomi.barber at bca.org.au. Eye to the Future website, eyetothefuture.com.au. Find out more about BCA's next steps with audio description. Visit bca.org.au forward slash ad on TV. Recorded information regarding scheduled programs containing AD are available via BCA's telephone system, which can be accessed by calling us on 1800-033-660. National Women's Branch, including Women Talk, contact Janine Sadu, nwb at bca.org.au. National Women's Branch Aspirations Magazine, contact Carmel Jolly, Jolly at bigpond.com. National Policy Council, contact Helen Ferreras, npc at bca.org.au. New South Wales slash ACT State Division, contact Graham Innes, graham at grahaminnes.com. NDIS slash NDIA, phone 1800 800 110. My Aged Care Contact Centre, phone 1800 200 422. Information about co-payments for home care packages to find out how much you might be required to contribute, contact the Department of Fees and Charges within the Department of Human Services, Centrelink on 1800 227 475. New Horizons Radio Broadcast Schedule. South Australia, Adelaide 5RPH 1197am and on RPH Adelaide Digital. Times 4.30pm Wednesday, repeated 8.15am Sunday. Queensland, Brisbane Reading Radio 1296am. It can also be heard on DAB Radio and the iHeart Radio app. Times 2pm Fridays. New South Wales and ACT, Sydney 2RPH 1224am, Sydney East 100.5 FM, Newcastle Lower Hunter 100.5 FM, times 3pm Thursday, repeated Saturday at 2pm. Canberra 1RPH 1125, Wagga Wagga 89.5, Junee 99.5 FM, times Tuesday 9.15am, repeated 8pm. Northern Territory Darwin VAR Digital Service and the Darwin Web Streaming Service. Times 4.30pm Wednesday, repeated 6.30pm Sunday. Tasmania, Hobart Print Radio Tasmania, 8.64am. Launceston, 106.9 FM. Devonport, 96.1 FM. Week 1 times, 5.15 Wednesdays and Fridays. Week 2 times, 5.15 Wednesdays, repeated 5.15pm. Fridays. 
Victoria, Melbourne, 3 RPH, 11.79am, and Vision Australia Radio Regional Stations, RPH Albury, 101.7FM, RPH Bendigo, 88.7FM, RPH Geelong, 99.5FM, RPH Mildura, 107.5FM, RPH Shepparton, 100.1FM, RPH Warrigal, 93.5FM, RPH Warnable, 882AM. Times 4.30pm Wednesday, repeated 6.30pm Sunday. Western Australia, Perth, 6RPH, 990AM. Times 4.30pm Wednesday, repeated 6.30pm Sundays.